Hello, and welcome to Public Key, the new podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host, Ian Andrews. What do the SEC, Department of Commerce, Tornado Cash, and BNY Mellon all have in common? Well, they're topics that are covered in this episode with former regulator Alma Agnati, who's now partner, financial services, global legislative and regulatory risk leader at Guidehouse. Alma has a unique perspective, having worked many years at SEC, FinCEN, and FINRA, and most recently advising financial services companies in her role at Guidehouse. We cover many of the hot topics in the regulatory landscape, including should crypto be regulated as a commodity or a security, and if the recent tornado cash sanctions were appropriate. I'm sure this episode will leave you wanting more, so after you listen, check out the show notes for links to some interesting blogs, including one on the White House Framework on Crypto, written by our own senior policy advisor and former guest of Public Key, Clark Flint Barr, and several other insightful blogs from the Guidehouse team. Today, I have a special guest from a partner of Chainalysis, Guidehouse, Alma Agnati joins us. Alma, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Ian. I'm delighted to be here. You know, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a couple of weeks since we were able to confirm your appearance because I'm so fascinated at the intersection of the traditional financial services ecosystem and crypto. Since the beginning of crypto, I think people have been talking about how Bitcoin is going to replace the way finance works. That's always sounded strange to me because uh, in my experience, technology is evolutionary. Not a lot of things actually get fully turned off and removed. And so I'm fascinated to see those interaction points where likely I think crypto starts to, to intersect with the traditional financial services world. And I think your company at Guidehouse is kind of living in that spot every day. <laughs> we, we are. We're working on both sides, the crypto side and the traditional finance side to help all these market participants figure out how to work together. Yeah. Really kind of an exciting time. I'm glad I got that right, because that's what I've been eager to talk about all week. So maybe for people that don't know Guidehouse, you're a pretty big company working with some uh, amazing organizations around all the world. Maybe we start with just a little bit of background, and then I'd love to get into your role and, and what your team specifically does. Sure. Guidehouse is a relatively recent consulting firm. It's a merger of the public sector practice of PwC and what was formerly Navigant Consulting. And we have three heavily regulated verticals, healthcare, energy, financial services, and then a technology and ESG and uh, cyber kind of horizontals that service all of our clients. We're about 15,000 strong now. So we've grown probably doubled in size with some acquisitions over the last couple of years. And we and in in financial services and crypto, I feel like we're very cutting edge. My group does a lot of focus on financial crime and sanctions and fraud. And we work with our colleagues in the banking group on consumer protection issues. And this is all what both the crypto digital assets companies and the financial institutions are dealing with as they're trying to integrate this new technology. You are living in all of the hot button topics in the world of crypto right now, the ones you just <laughs> rattled off there. <laughs> That's exactly. amazing. I'm always fascinated to learn about how people first got into crypto. You know, frequent listeners of this podcast will know that I was definitely on the outside looking in until joining Chainalysis at the beginning of last year. You know, where, where did you first encounter crypto, either personally or professionally? And like, what's been your journey uh, since that first inception moment? 
So like many of the best things that happened to you, it was completely unplanned. But I spent a lot of years in, in enforcement at the SEC. And I have a lot of colleagues who went from the commission into the private sector. And about 2017, as you know, there were an awful lot of initial coin offerings going on. Many of my former colleagues just would call me and say, can you help these people figure out if they need to do something on the regulatory side? We've got the legal stuff set, but we don't know what they're supposed to be doing. So a couple of my team members and I, honestly, when I was first trying to figure it out, it gave me a headache. I was just like, what? And then, <laughs> then one day we kind of realized it's not a thing. It's just code. And once you sort of can make that mental switch... And people think that regulation is unclear now. At the time, we would just tell clients, stop trying to figure out what you are. Let's just have some good risk management. And whatever they decide you are, you'll be halfway there, or if not farther than that, right? And so that, that worked for a while. That's pretty amazing. So you were saying in, in 2017, ICOs are all the craze and companies are trying to figure out who we should be regulated by? Is there any laws or, or kind of organizing principles that we need to follow in order to do this reputably? It's a good thing that you said practice safe risk management and move forward as opposed to wait for regulatory clarity, because I think that's actually the same discussion that we're having today with the SEC and the CFTC, right? We're still trying to figure it out five years later. Exactly. And, you know, people like to criticize the regulators a lot. Now, granted, I have spent 25 years in regulatory enforcement roles, so I do have a little bias. But they do have to be careful that they don't come in too hot and really either overreact to something that's not going to develop into an important market presence or that they really do cut down innovation. So I think that's why they're cautious. And you you'll see that the cases that, that the CFTC and the SEC brought really are just fraud. Most of them are just bad people doing bad things or dumb people doing bad things one or the other. But now I think it's time and you're seeing pressure as companies get bigger, as both public policy and legislators and financial regulators start to understand the technology and its risks, but also its special mitigants which I always like to point out some, you know, sometimes when I'm speaking about this to people who don't know, I talk about the three myths of crypto and one of them is it's anonymous because we know it's not. <laughs> and in some ways you get a lot more comfort from cryptocurrency transactions than others. So I think it's, it's time now that they start clarifying what people are and how they should be regulated. And I think we're seeing a lot of steps in that area globally. And that really kind of brings us to your, your role for Guidehouse. Maybe, maybe talk a little bit about the position you sit in, because it is really the intersection point of industry and policy as it's being developed. Do I understand that correctly? Yeah. So I really have, I think, the most fun job because my job is really emerging risks, emerging trends, emerging technology. And even if it's not completely new, like I focus on payments because there'll always be a place for banking, but payments are becoming more and more important. Same with crypto. My job is to make sure that we are able to help our clients in these changing environments. We're doing work with the NESG for financial institutions because that's another changing area of regulation and legislation. And we have to be able to help them do it right. And so it's really kind of fun because 
a lot of times we're just starting from scratch. (laughs) And I think your perspective is so unique because, as you mentioned, you spent the first part of your career on the government side, you know, first at FINRA and then SEC. Do I have the order there? SEC first. Then I went to FinCEN in 1998 to start the enforcement program for the Bank Secrecy Act. So I brought some of the first big cases. And if you look at FinCEN orders, they look a lot like SEC orders because that's what I used as a mock-up and they still use them. (laughs) And then I went to FINRA because after September 11th, when we wrote a lot of the new regs under the USA Patriot Act, FINRA got much of the money laundering jurisdiction. The SROs got much of it. The SEC got less of it uh, by their choice. And so that was a natural move for me to kind of help them get up to speed and get up and running in examining and enforcing these, what were essentially brand new rules. And as you were leaving leaving FinCEN and even the time at, at FINRA, was crypto on the radar for you at all? Or was it all much more you know, traditional kind of fiat money laundering? It was all traditional. Yeah. It was all traditional. The first that probably along with a lot of people that I became aware of it was Liberty Reserve and those big criminal cases that were they Silk were Road, using probably. Bitcoin. Silk Road, yeah. They were yeah. using Bitcoin to pay for bad things. And now we I feel like and maybe this is a bias of being in the industry, but it feels like so much of the money laundering conversation revolves around crypto. I know when uh, sanctions were levied against Russia, the first sort of suggestion on how they might dilute the effect of those sanctions was, oh, the entire economy is going into Bitcoin. Watch out. And even the Treasury Department said, we're not terribly worried about that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we we might have given him some data suggesting that that was unlikely to be the case. But I think, you know, I would have to guess, and actually maybe I should frame this as a question rather than a suggestion, is like, as you're talking to clients at GuideHouse in the banking sector, when you talk about emerging risks or concerns for their business, where does cryptocurrency rate on their radar today? And is that more or less than, say, the, the last big boom cycle in, in 2017 with ICOs? Like, is this a topic that more people are trying to digest and, and bring products and services to market? Absolutely. We're seeing so much. Now, sometimes there is a difference between the business side of the bank and the compliance people. And I've actually had some meetings where the business has asked us to come in and talk about how you can do this business safely and how you can mitigate the risk. Again, education is key because their regulators can be very worried about any new products and services that they feel like the bank may not be able to control properly. They worry about money transmitters. They worry about check cashers. They worry about lots of cash businesses. They worry about international clients, all of those things that they're afraid the banks may not really comprehend how to manage. But the business people, I think, particularly see this as a huge opportunity and they don't want to miss the boat. I remember when Bank of New York Mellon said they were going to custody crypto. I thought, well, there it is, right? This is one of the oldest, most conservative institutions in America and they get it and they get that they can service this industry safely. And I just think that's a good sign and we're seeing more and more fidelity Goldman. Morgan Stanley has a crypto fund, I think. So we're seeing a lot of, as you said, the traditional finance folks understanding the potential. And you're also seeing in compliance departments, they're hiring people from banks, straight up old people like me who have been doing 
financial crime and, and compliance for a long, long time at regular financial institutions and bringing all of that knowledge. That also gives the regulators comfort that the cryptocurrency exchanges take it seriously. That's been my perception as well. I mean, obviously, Bank of New York Mellon is a Chainalysis customer, a number of the other institutions you name there as well. And honestly, that was the biggest surprise for me coming newly into the industry two years ago. I, I could sort of appreciate the government side, like law enforcement and regulators. It made a lot of sense why they would pay attention to crypto because criminals were operating there. And it made a lot of sense to me, the scale of growth around crypto businesses and a lot of the fintechs that were trying to grab market share from traditional banks, and they would see crypto as an obvious place to be. But Bank of New York Mellon was really a surprise to me. I mean, I had worked with them previous companies earlier in my career. And as you described them, I think is they would appreciate very conservative, trustworthy institution they're not out leading on the bleeding edge, usually. <laughs> no. But very much so in this case. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a service that they do really well, just custody assets. So somebody said, we should be able to do this just like we safely custody billions and billions of dollars, maybe trillions of other assets for our customers. So, you know, I think there's been a lot happening in the policy world. I'd love to get your perspective on. First, lately, there's been a lot of testimony happening on Capitol Hill. I, it feels like this is heating up as a topic. There's competing bills happening, you know, all across different committees. The administrators running various regulatory agencies are making lots of public statements in the press. Maybe we can start with just kind of your summary perspective around like for someone that's not paying attention to this every day, like I'm sure you do. What's the state of things in the U.S. market as it relates to crypto regulation? Interestingly enough, probably the most buttoned up area is money laundering and sanctions because uh, FinCEN, which is the money laundering regulatory agency that I used to work for, they right away were able to say that crypto assets exchanges are money transmitters, just like any place that you can send money, Western Union, MoneyGram, any place. And the main thing, the only thing they really regulate is financial crime. And then you have the various state regulations. So that's actually pretty buttoned up. And I think that's why Treasury wasn't terribly worried about sanctions. And I mean, granted, there is bad money going through every institution on the planet because it has to go somewhere. And one of the things we hope to do is just make it more expensive and harder for them to do, right? And then we find it sometimes. At the SEC, we used to say we only find the dumb crooks, but whatever, you at least find some of them. Does, does that come printed on a t-shirt? <laughs> it should, shouldn't it? Um, <laughs> I think that's a great point, though, that I don't want to skip over is a lot of people who are new to the space say, oh, crypto is not regulated. But in fact, you know, FinCEN made the move to say, hey, if you're a crypto exchange, you're a money transmitter and you need to follow existing regulation that everybody from Western Union to PayPal to other financial services providers already follow. And I think that, if I've got it right, requires both identity verification, what a lot of people call KYC, and it requires any money laundering transaction monitoring. Those are the two big pieces, if I understand it correctly. Those are the two big pieces, absolutely. And then you had the New York Department of Financial Services come in pretty early and say, we're going to have a state bit license 
if you want to offer your products in the state of New York. And that was pretty early on. And they do have consumer protection and custody and other uh, kinds of regulations. And that's a big market. So a lot of institutions with bit licenses are pretty well regulated. Now, this is probably a topic for another day, but given our system of federalism, there if you want to do business in the U.S., you need 50 state licenses. So that's just a complicating factor. But the, the Europeans are a little ahead of this. Us oh, they this. are. We had a, a session on MICA, the EU regulation, and it seems like a big pillar of MICA is if you can get licensed in one member country of the EU, it's reciprocal to all other 26. It seems like we could figure out how to do something like that in the U.S. Maybe not. The OCC, probably not. The OCC had issued the potential for folks to get what they called a fintech charter. It would be a federal kind of MSB charter so that you didn't need 50 state licenses and the state sued them. And that is now on, I don't know if it's on appeal with the Second Circuit or or they've lost it entirely because states made the point that they have an interest in protecting their own citizens, which, which made sense in a brick and mortar world. But frankly, to me, in a digital world, doesn't make any sense at all. But that said... (laughs) And we're actually seeing some fintechs go the other way, right? There's been a couple that have acquired banks specifically for that OCC charter, right? I think SoFi maybe kind of famously did that. uh, Green Dot has a bank. So the fintechs are getting it anyway. (laughs) They are. And I don't know all the ins and outs of like licensing and registration, but all I can say is it's probably a nightmare and there's definitely existing regulation that that puts in what I consider to be kind of baseline regulatory guardrails. But a lot of the discussion lately has been this debate between, well, is crypto a commodity or is it a security? Because that has grand implications for whether the SEC or the CFTC has an oversight. I have to admit that I'm a little bit lost in this debate. I hear people throw around terms like the Howey test. And I've tried to go read about that. I, I kind of don't get it. Like, how would you uh, summarize for somebody that's a casual listener, maybe from outside the United States, about why why is this even important? Which agency has regulatory authority? Does it really matter whether crypto is considered a security or a commodity? It matters a lot. So I should pay attention and figure it yes. out is what you're telling me. Okay, all right. Because securities are much more... And the CFTC might take a little bit of issue with this, but this, but securities regulatory framework is much more detailed and prescriptive than the CFTC's. It, also, the SEC has traditionally been much more active enforcement agency than the CFTC, although they might disagree with that too. And they're getting a little bit more active. It's not like they don't do anything. They're just more principles-based. The SEC is more rule-based. There are lots and lots of disclosure requirements that if you're going to issue, offer securities to the public that you have to comply with, there are audit requirements. It's very extensive. Now, those things have made our securities markets the safest in the world, right? That's why people want to invest here, because there are people watching to make sure that you're told about the risks, you're told about the rewards, there's safe capital requirements of the institutions. So that's why it makes a lot of difference to the participants. The definition of a security is 
the, to distill the Howey test. If I give you money and you're going to take that money and run a business and give me some of it back based on how much money you've earned, that's a security. Sounds very straightforward. So why in the context of crypto is this an open debate, right? This is what was at sort of being contested all the way back in 2017. It feels like we could have settled this during the last down market and not not had it as an open question. And I think there are a couple of reasons for that. It is because it's a completely different asset class. It's because it's completely digital. And sometimes some of the rewards are not as obvious as getting a dividend for your IBM stock. And I think that the industry, it was born of libertarian, keep the government out of what we're doing. And I don't think they wanted to be regulated by the SEC. So I think that was part of it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And it can be very expensive. Going through the process of, of registering and making sure there are certain exemptions from registration, but those can be hard to comply with. And it can be a violation if you blow through that, that I think the industry was trying to find a better way to do it. And, you know, they think they're very different from traditional assets. I can see some of that argument, right? If I think about Ethereum, it's a network on which lots of potentially securities or commodities or some other asset class are built and deployed. But there's also a native token there, Ether, which is you know second most valuable cryptocurrency behind Bitcoin. It's 30-ish percent of the total market capitalization of all crypto. Who would file the S1 registration with the SEC if we decide that's a security? There's not a company necessarily that that is in control of Ethereum or that could, like I'm thinking about one of my previous companies we took at public and there's the huge filing that you do. (laughs) But all of that ultimately gets attested by the CFO and the CEO of the company, right? There's, There's some legal weight to signing off on all these statements of risk and how the business operates. Who would do that in the context of something like Ethereum? It doesn't on the surface make sense to me that that's the appropriate like disclosure framework necessarily. Not to say that we shouldn't have disclosures, but I don't know that one fits. Well, and I think at least Jay Clayton, the last chairman of the SEC, said he did not think Bitcoin was a security just for that reason, that they might be buying it as an investment, but not because Satoshi said it will increase in value, right? And it's to be used. And some of them, some of the recent cases, like the case against Ripple, like the Coinbase Insider Trading case, where they listed nine of the 20 tokens as securities, and they actually go through a very detailed analysis of why those particular tokens are securities. And in some cases, they are tokens that are being sold to build something else that does seem a little bit more securities like. I think a lot of the exchanges go through kind of a token by token analysis to see if it's a security or not, because they can't trade it without being a broker dealer if it is. And I think to go back to some of the pending legislation, what some of the bills want to do is say, let's just say what they are so people don't have to guess and go through all this analysis, like the Loomis Gillibrand bill, they say, if you're going to do an ICO, like the ones my friends were talking about, that is a security. The offering of those shares, but the ancillary assets of the tokens that that enterprise spins off 
are not. And they're just saying it by statute. So you won't have to go through all that analysis. And they feel like there are some, as you said, more limited disclosures that the token designers will have to put out so that people kind of know what they're getting. And that may be a good solution. And at this point, it's good just to get something out there. I think enough time has passed and then we can figure it out later if it if it's not perfect. It seems like a very reasonable balance position, right? An ICO, again, like as a as a layperson in this space, an ICO looks a lot like a fundraising event to me. You know, most of the ones that I've looked closely at is very clearly a for-profit business. They're distributing tokens in order to raise capital to fund development of a company. And there's, in theory, that company will be worth more money in the future once it's built whatever it, it intends to build. Like that, I look at that and I say that's no different than going to a venture capital firm on Sand Hill Road and raising a seed round. The exception being that you suddenly have sort of a crowdfunded platform. And I actually think that's a very legitimate case. Like I'm I'm a strong skeptic of accredited investor rules because I think it misses the intended consumer protection effect and instead is exclusionary unnecessarily. There's lots of people who at small contribution levels would like to participate in lots of different things entrepreneurship being one of them, but we've sort of seen the model work really well on Kickstarter and GoFundMe. Like, why can't that be applied to the business world? But of course, there should be reasonable disclosure and risk management around it too, right? And there is actually a, and this was put in under Dodd-Frank, it's called the Jobs Act, where you can crowdfund, but it has to be an exempt offering, but you can do it, but it has to be exempt. And so this would take out having to get lawyers to say, well, how do I do this? So it's exempt. When you get to Ethereum and, and those tokens that really are just an item of value that people can trade back and forth, then those wouldn't be. And yeah, and, and the democratization of finance is a big promise of some of this technology. Now, I will say again, just my colleagues at the SEC and the CFTC, the minute there's a big splash, like I read something the other day about talking about the Celsius bankruptcy where was the SEC? It's like, well, you keep telling them not to enforce, <laughs> regulate by enforcement. So what are you talking about? Right. So there, it's that balance too. People all, often don't know what they're buying. They looked at the t-shirt. It said he wasn't a bank. <laughs> they said, okay, good. We're exactly necessary disclosure. No, nothing further to see here. Different topic, although maybe as, as controversial as that, I have to imagine all your clients are talking about sanctions risk right now. This must be a huge body of guidehouse work, particularly since the, the Russia-Ukraine invasion. When it comes to Crypto and sanctions, the big controversial topic has been tornado cash. What's the guidehouse perspective on this? The approach that the government took in sanctioning what is, some would describe kind of a, a decentralized app or a piece of code versus a, an operating entity or an individual. Like perspective on that? Is that a new frontier? Should we expect more of this as technology evolves? It's not really a new frontier, although typically those kinds of sanctions come out of the Department of Commerce. There's all kinds of technology that you are not allowed to sell to China or Russia or Iran. 
OFAC hasn't really done it before, although they have sanctioned wallet addresses, but those sort of represent a person's account, bank account or equivalent. I think what you're, the problem with OFAC is so much of it is a national security issue. I'm guessing they didn't feel like they wanted to dilly-dally around with the legal niceties and they have a reasonable basis. They may ultimately lose, uh, but they have a reasonable basis for doing it. And North Korea is a huge national security risk. It's, it's of such significance to the government that I think they just decided to shoot now and ask questions later. Uh, like I said, I think they have a reasonable basis for it, but I'm sure a court will decide that one way or the other. And then in this case, if they do decide it's not appropriate, I this may be one of those areas where that Congress will be able to disagree and give them the authority to do this. Because again, you're talking about a rogue nation with nuclear capabilities that starves its own people from time to time, right? You bring up a really interesting point there that I actually hadn't thought about, which is the Commerce Department does regulate export of technology quite a bit. For a long time, in the early days of the internet, there were two versions of the Netscape browser. There was one that supported SSL encryption, which was sold domestically, and then there was a version that uh, was exported that didn't have encryption in it. So if you know people listening, imagine you know there's no lock. You just went to an HCP address. That was the way the internet worked for people outside the U.S. and Ultimately, a lot of those encryption algorithms became open sourced and through that process sort of deregulated. But there's all sorts of technology that falls under a similar limitation. And there's different lists of countries that aren't able to access it. Applying that thinking is the first time that I've, uh, I've heard this in the context of Tornado Cash. But it makes a ton of sense. We're basically saying, sure. Normal law-abiding citizen, totally reasonable for you to use anonymization technology, but we can't make this very easy for a nation-state adversary like North Korea to use the technology, and the people who are creating it have to put effort into preventing that misuse. I'm sold on this concept, actually. I really like that. Because I think that the other side of the argument, right, Coinbase is now backing a lawsuit challenging this designation, is, well, no, there's... There is both a right to privacy and a number of legitimate uses of Tornado Cash specifically that are being you know, hindered through this, this sanction designation. And I think actually they're right. Like They are right. Absolutely. But you can't have an anonymous passport either, right? Yeah. You, <laughs> they have to know who you are before they'll give you a passport. You're, I think you're making a great point here. And I think there's some prior art that supports the action that was taken there is an opportunity for anybody that's listening to this podcast that is building to figure out how you can have verified but still anonymous actors, right? That allows us to keep out the bad guys, allow legitimate use in a way that doesn't fully expose your identity. And it may be, and I'm way out of my league here, but I've heard smart people say things like this, so hopefully I don't get it wrong. Maybe some sort of digital identity where somebody knows who you are and that it's fine for you to do this transaction, but the code, the platform, whatever it is, that transaction doesn't have to know who you are. I mean, this comes up very clearly in the discussions about central bank digital currencies for the U.S., right? We don't want to be China where 
if you use the digital yuan, the Chinese government knows every single thing. I mean, now American Express and Visa know every single thing you're doing, but that's <laughs> voluntary. That's voluntary. And you get all these great rewards for them knowing. I mean, all the points are totally. I worth- love. I love my points, but. Um, <laughs> But, you know, the federal government doesn't want to be in a position of knowing every single transaction that every single one of its citizens is doing. And so that's a big technical discussion. How can you keep the traceability? Because you have to have that. And maybe you make the F- the law enforcement have to have a subpoena, just like they do to get your bank records. They have to have a subpoena. Right. Uh, or something like that, but how can you separate out the identity from the transaction until the government has a right to see it? So these are the mitigant of the blockchain that everything is visible is one of the downsides when you're talking about a, a central bank digital currency. What's your take on central bank digital currency? Will we see one in the United States, you think, in the in the next decade? I don't see how they could not do it. The world is getting digital, right? It's just like electric cars. We're all going to be driving them someday. You That's know, right. probably sooner than we think it may take a while. As I said, there's this big policy issue they have to deal with. And maybe the answer is a privately issued stable coin where, like with cash now, if you take cash to your bank, your bank knows who you are. And the Fed doesn't have to care because the bank knows. And if they want to know, they can get a subpoena and get those bank records. So maybe something like that. I don't know, but I can't see how we can not. It's too useful. Remember, it took a while, but the Social Security Department will give you your benefits on a debit card because the technology is just too useful, especially for people who don't have access to bank accounts, which is a much bigger number than people realize in the U.S. as well as globally. Yeah, I was shocked to learn that that number is upwards of 5 million people in the United States. 5 million of the adults in the United States don't have bank accounts. And then if as soon as you go outside the United States or Western Europe, that number goes through the roof as a, as a percentage of uh, adult population. It's a problem we're solving for sure. Well, Alma, this has been a terrific conversation. I could keep talking to you all day. Thanks for sharing your, your thoughts and opinions. And uh, we'll, we'll have to do this again soon as uh, new policy topics emerge. It was my pleasure. Which, as we said before, happens every day. Something happens every day. So Every few minutes. We'll schedule this weekly, maybe. <laughs> well, at least we can have coffee in the neighborhood and talk about it weekly. So That's right. Perfect. So, thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to what is sure to be one of our favorite episodes on Public Key. If you're enjoying the show, leave us a review. Or better yet, send me a message on Twitter. I'm at DC, or hit the at Chainalysis handle and let us know who we should interview next. I guess haunted houses aren't the scariest part of October anymore. Chainalysis reports reveal that October is now the biggest month in the biggest year ever for hacking activity. Through the first few weeks of the month, $718 million has been stolen from DeFi protocols across 11 different hacks. Four of those happened in the same day last week. If you want to dig into the details, check out the links in the show notes.